Hey, it's Nathan and Sean again. We want to welcome you back to the 13-week Bible Season 2. We're in Episode 7, ahead of Week 6's reading, as we share in this epic journey through the Bible in just 13 weeks. We pray you're making incredible discoveries and seeing God more beautifully. Today, we're previewing Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and on through Psalm 45. Sean, how are you? I'm well, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, one of my favorite books this week that we're oh. previewing. Oh, let me try to guess. Um, Esther. No. Ezra. No. Nehemiah. <laughs> You're really going through them. You don't know? You can't guess? No, I'm joking. Job. Job, yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. There Job's, you go. Job. Job's quite a book. You got any words yeah. about uh, your reading experience that you would want to add? Uh, as I know we talked last week about sort of the reading experience. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add this week as you're no, not, nothing, nothing in particular. I, I did get a little behind that I'm trying to catch up. Um, you know, we're ahead of the reading anyway, so I'm not behind what we've read for this episode. But yeah, um, yeah, just trying to catch up. I was just sharing with you that I've been writing a major paper for my doctoral work. So my brain was kind of fried for the last few weeks. But uh, now I have a little more extra time. I'm able to, to do some catching up. Nice. One of the things I noticed be, um, as part of, again, trying to keep up, which is, is part of the journey itself, I focused this last week on actually working through the text as a week project rather than a day-to-day -day project. Mm. So I would read day-to-day, -day, but I didn't mark off the day's reading. I marked off the week's reading. Mm -hmm. And that was just a different experience as far as thinking of the reading rather than thinking of it as one day's reading. I was thinking of it more as a week's sort of even a bigger picture. So I'm still working through day to day, but I'm thinking of it more uh, on the week scale. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, they just sort of changed how I saw the text. So um, again, just an encouragement, find a way that works for you. The idea is to get the big picture of the text, whatever that means for you. If it means reading every word, if it means working through chapter headings one day, going back and skimming the next, whatever that means, just do it because we're, mm. we're working through the text to get the big picture, not to check the box that we've read every single word. Mm -hmm. So, and keep it up again, Sean just admitted that he he's off pace. So that's normal to fall off pace. Don't sweat it. Um, just take steps to get back on pace, skim the headings, commit to coming back in the future. Um, better to try to stay close to pace than to just get piled up. And, and maybe I would say this, Nathan, find someone to partner with to do mm. this, mm -hmm. because I'll be honest with you. If I wasn't committed to this process with you and recording this podcast and all that, I think I would have just quit because I'm like, well, I'm like four or five days behind. I got so much going on. So I probably would have just thought, like, yeah, I, I, I had a good run. Um, right. I'm, I'm not going to make it this time. So having that accountability and knowing that you're going to be processing it with somebody else and maybe you don't need to do a podcast in order to feel accountability, but finding somebody else, I think could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, and especially this morning and a couple other times, um, 
encouraging a big read at the beginning of 2024 to accompany this podcast. And um, if I decide on a way to organize that, um, I mean, obviously, by the time you're listening to this podcast, it'll already be happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Mm -hmm. hopefully, by the time you're listening, you will already have found your group to um, work through the text with. It's a great small group project, great project for friends. And again, just keeping sort of keeping each other accountable, um, not a heavy handed accountability, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. just kind of the expectation that, hey, we're going to talk about this this week and um, just helps to sort of keep you on pace. It's so good. I, again, thoroughly enjoy it. I'm just going to run through the, well, recap, quick recap for last week. Um, the week we're just finishing up, how would you recap that? Because it was what, Second uh, Kings 16 through the end of Second Chronicles. What would you say is the big recap for this past week's reading? Well, I think it's one tragic story of God's people devolving into terribly unfortunate behaviors as they turn away from God's rulership and mm. go into, as you use the term, Nathan, morally deforming behaviors, mm. and uh, ultimately God allowing them to reap the consequences of their decisions and actions and behaviors, you know, first with Israel, the northern kingdom, and then with Judah, you know, the southern mm-hmm. kingdom. So that's what I would say was the big picture idea of the the readings and really to a large degree um, as well the significance of poor and immoral leadership which has mm. incredible effect on on God's people yep that's right so we find ourselves with this week's reading in Babylonian captivity that's basically where we left it in second at the end of second chronicles so um, this week's reading really brings us to the end of an era in the historical narrative. There is some additional history we're going to read, but a lot of what we see from here on out is, is um, writings and prophets. Moses was a prophet, yes, but we're looking more at um, messages to God's people before or during or after the Babylonian captivity. That's basically the rest of this Israel story. Um, one of the things we we'll talk about periodically is Old and New Testament, and I just want to throw in there that I'd, I I heard a friend of ours, David Asherick, say there's one page you can rip out of your Bible. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but that's the page between the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to us to think about in this podcast, uh, maybe talking about the sort of the big divisions in Scripture as Israel. Jesus and early church mm-hmm. to keep in our minds that this is a continuity. Yeah, there's a huge like 400 year gap between Malachi and the ministry of John the Baptist, but it's not a gap in the narrative per se because this is mm-hmm. the people of God. It's a different different eras of the people of God, but the same storyline. Um, yeah, it's we not. Are, it, go for it. Yeah, there's there's continuity. It's not exactly. Like, you know, what you just said made me think of when I was um, an undergraduate at Andrews University, I was doing a preaching class, and one of my classmates and good friends, um, he was a Jewish Christian, and hmm. I'll never forget, and 
and today he's, I think, kind of not a Christian at all. He's just embraced now his Jewish his Jewish heritage. But I'll never forget, he stood up when it was his turn to preach, because this was a preaching class, and he, with great zeal and violence, literally ripped out that page that separates the two testaments. And he was just mm. wanting to show in a very visible way what he felt about the tendency within Christian circles to make mm. a stark dichotomy between the two testaments. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about this week because actually we are just just a few days by the end of this week's reading, we're just a few days before cresting the peak of our read. So mm-hmm. this week we're still climbing the hill toward the, the middle of the reading, but next week we'll actually come to the top and begin descending um, toward toward Revelation. So, mm-hmm. um, but thinking about it, there are 10 weeks out of 13 spent in the Israel story. <laughs> there is... Mm-hmm. Um, three weeks in the Jesus and early church story. So you can mm. see massive weight on the Israel story, but that's not really accurate in the sense that a lot of the Israel narrative and the prophetic narrative finds itself repeated, quoted, alluded to in the Jesus and early mm-hmm. church narrative. Mm-hmm. So so it's not just sort of a clean break between the Israel mm-hmm. story and the Jesus and early church story. They're just super woven together. And, and you know, um, some might even push back on your framing of it where they would say, well, the New Testament is a continuation of the Israel story. You know, yes. It's, it's, yes. Not, it's not something different from it. It's not a replacement yep. for the Israel story. It is still the Israel story. God is it still is. trying to do his thing through his people. And so anyway, but that would be a good discussion for the future. Yeah, and I and I was thinking of that. So again, this is just a crude break to sort of find a simple way to get rid of Old and yeah. New Testament. Um, but you're right. It is the Israel story. Paul makes that case all the way after the Jesus story, makes the case of, of Israel for an mm-hmm. Israel defined by faith, not mm-hmm. defined by genetics. But that's a conversation Which, we'll yeah. probably cross into. I can't wait for that one. I cannot wait <laughs> yeah. for those. Those are, those are awesome. Yes. So quick recap, uh, not a recap, but a preview of this week's um, reading. We're starting with Ezra. And again, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther all fit into a a category together in that they are um, books that occupy the Babylonian captivity and the bit of the post-Babylonian captivity as the exiles begin to resettle the land. So Ezra, priest and teacher, primarily a book related to the rebuilding of the temple and bringing God's people back into harmony with his will. Um, You'll find there are several decrees related to the rebuilding and and restoring of the temple that show up in Ezra. Uh, There's also a specific focus on resolving mixed marriages. Nehemiah primarily uh, focuses on the rebuilding of the wall and um, The book also, however, does include some reform, especially the Sabbath, among others. Esther is the story of a queen's intervention, Jewish queen, by the way, of her intervention for her people during the reign of King Xerxes, preventing a mass slaughter. 
Then we move to a totally different time in history and a different kind of book, the book of Job, the story of a very wealthy man from the East who suffers devastating loss at the hands of Satan, then is accosted by miserable comforters, as he calls them. He finally hears directly from God and his losses are ultimately reversed through God's providence. Then we're into the Psalms, book one of Psalms, which is chapters one through 41, uh, mostly credited to David. And then we move into the early chapters of book two of the Psalms. You may or may not find those divisions in your version of scripture, but there are five books that make up the Psalms. And again, we'll finish book one and move into book two of the Psalms. That's the quick preview. Sean, let's jump into um, Ezra. I, I did want to talk, though, before we do that, uh, just about some characters in the story. We do talk about the Israel national story, but there's some characters who acted in the secular world. Joseph under Pharaoh, and this is interesting, Joseph is second only to Pharaoh. Like he is all but at the top of a just major non, non-Hebrew power. Esther, queen of Media Persia under Xerxes, Mordecai, powerful noble under Xerxes, holding the place of highest honor among the nobles of the kingdom. Daniel, which we haven't looked at yet, but again, thinking about individuals who played major influential roles in non-Hebrew kingdoms. Daniel, under multiple kingdoms in Babylon and um, two empires, as well as Nehemiah, who's cupbearer to Artaxerxes. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I, I, I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, generally when we think of the Hebrew Bible, we think of a commitment to place, I guess we could say, where, you know, the temple has huge significance and generally it's a, it's a picture of God trying to draw people to a place hmm. and it is the nations that they're hoping to draw to themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than them going out and meeting the people, so to speak. So, so there's a very stark distinction between God's people, you know, I put that in quotes, um, who are very separate from, and we see that in Ezra because they're 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 making a a very strong distinction when it comes to the intermarriage that takes place, and they even you know take a record and account of that. Um, so so there's a very distinct sense of separateness, and mm-hmm. to any degree that there is interaction, it's you are coming to us, you are mm. you are coming to our place. You know, we have this holy, sacred space. Um, you must come to us. So it is fascinating when you get those glimpses, those little vignettes of people who are um, who are living within the nation, so to speak, mm-hmm. who are who are going out, because that's not the impression you get of mm. the Hebrew Bible. It's very much, as I understand it, the model of kind of now the Jesus age where you know Jesus sends out the apostles he sends mm. out the disciples to go out it's not like we're trying to draw people 
to ourselves because um, this one place bears significance. It's like, okay, you guys are going out into the nations. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that that distinction is interesting, and I do find it fascinating. With that being said, the very point you were making that you have these people, Joseph, Daniel, etc., who are a little kind of preview of what's to come, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now they were in those circumstances against their their own volition. They didn't want, right. so it's almost like God, you know, has to drag them hmm. to be in those positions of influence. But um, I think part of it is God was, was doing something specific. He was trying to set up, as we've talked about before, a, a nation that was a people that was very immature. So they needed to have those guardrails of, you know, not being, not being exposed to those other, influences so he had to protect them in some ways but i don't think that's ultimately what god wanted there were certain right. people apparently daniel joseph as we mentioned who could handle being among the other nations mm. but um, the vast majority of people couldn't so right. that's why god had to have them come to the to, to israel so but yeah it, it is really interesting and it, we're going to get to a text, I think this is Jeremiah, where he says, um, pray for the, the prosperity of the nation in which you find yourself an exile. Mm -hmm. So those are words in, in our future reading, but interesting mm -hmm. sort of model. Uh, again, you talked about what appears to be an exclusivist, almost exclusivist mm -hmm. framework for the national story. But then we find, again, and we're not talking about just um, some low level, which I think is a fascinating part. We're not talking about a low level position in these kingdoms. Um, when we talk about Daniel or even Nehemiah, we're talking about positions of significant influence. And so I just think that's a cool thing to sort of notice that mm -hmm. the, the followers of God have occupied outside of Israel, have occupied positions of significant mm -hmm. influence and favor within mm -hmm. non-Hebrew kingdoms. Well, we didn't even mention Esther, right? Right. I mean, well, I, I did, but we didn't talk did. about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, she, she obviously was in that category of people who were in high, you know, high authority. So, yeah. All right, let's talk about Ezra, the first of our book, and um, the first of our books uh, for this week's reading. Any comments on Ezra? Well, I do think, you know, and I'm sure we'll unpack this a little bit more, but yeah, that point we were just making about the intermarriage, the, the mm. judgment that's brought against that, and I mean, that has all sorts of larger implications and theological discussions but um it is interesting that that god was so moved by and and you know frustrated with i guess we could say this failure to remain pure and to mm. resist the influences of the other nations through those through those marriages you know clearly as we were just coming through the life of solomon you know, it says that those foreign wives drew Solomon's heart away from mm -hmm. the, the purposes of God. So this is a theme that is developed throughout the Hebrew Bible. And I think it's 
you know, again, we can probably revisit it down the line when we come to the New Testament because Paul, you know, talks about unequal, being unequally yoked and so mm. forth. Um, but, you know, that's a theme that is woven throughout Scripture is the dangers of compromising in this area. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, this, by the way, is something you can uh, keep your eyes open or ears open for as you uh, listen or read through Ezra 9. Um, it won't be new because we've seen this in the past, but it's interesting that Ezra says, the land you're entering, This is he's actually quoting uh, from the past in uh, from the law as he's calling the people back to faithfulness. The land you're entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people. So, it wasn't like, would we say, xenophobic for mm. this instruction. It was actually very practical. It's grounded in God desiring to create a people of high moral integrity. And mm -hmm. the marriage, the intermarrying was not an issue of mixed races. It was an issue of moral deforming. And, mm -hmm. and God was seeking to keep a very clear boundary between Israel and the influence of the surrounding cultures, which had become so morally deformed as to pollute the, like literally pollute the soil is kind of the picture you get in, in scripture. And so God's like, don't get mixed up with them because if you do, they're going to be your undoing. So again, it wasn't a worry about Hebrew children having uh Philistine blood or vice versa. Wrong it was or, exactly, yeah. which yeah. certainly when we talk about racism have definitely, if we're thinking racism, we're totally wrong, totally missing the point. It was mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with it. It was God wanting to establish a people who reflected him in character. And this mm -hmm. very practical action was essential to doing that at this point in the human story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make. And, you know, obviously there, there could be some further wrestling and discussion we could do about the religious component of, of, you know, being quote unquote unequally yoked and, you know, to what degree that is still relevant today, mm. applicable, you know, generally in this this conversation we've been having we're not kind of applying it to our present context but you know discussions of well can a baptist marry a presbyterian can a you know can a seventh day adventist which is the background we come from can they marry a you know a methodist and you know I, that that's a that's an interesting discussion mm. and but you know that would be for another day it will be for another day, yes. Um, probably so not as, on this podcast. Probably not. We, I'm sure we could find a venue to have that conversation, though. <laughs> so yeah. Ezra and Nehemiah are, are leaders focused on two different pieces of work. Ezra is a priest, and his call by God is to lead the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah's call is to lead the rebuilding of the wall. They, their story overlaps, as you clearly see near the end of the book. There is, is um, they're both engaged in the reform process. Both talk about resolving these mixed marriages. <clears throat> 
But why do we have the rebuilding of the temple before the discussion of the rebuilding of the wall? Do you think that's deliberate? Is is there any particular order to be thinking about, or is that just that just happens to be the layout of the historical narrative? Yeah, well, I think you know God places a premium in the Hebrew Bible on this this temple that displays his glory. You know, he's mm. wanting to restore, kind of going back to what we were talking about, he was wanting to restore true worship. He was wanting mm. to restore the opportunity for his people to, you know, again, not because he had an ego trip, not yep, because yep, he was yep. saying, oh man, I've, I've missed people falling down and bowing and, you know, <laughs> whatever. He, right. he knows ultimately that true worship is the only thing that can fully restore the principles of love that he is so eager to see human beings beings experience. So I know I think that's part of it is that this is a high priority for him. Again, I, I, I'm not sure that physical space in 2023 is as important as it was hmm. in whenever this was 500 or 400 or whatever. Um, BC, but uh, it is at that moment a significant part of God's ability, if you will, quote unquote, to restore a morally forming type of worship. Yeah, I love that. The word that the sentence that came to mind is worship is at the heart of formation. Mm, mm hmm. Both mm -hmm. deformation, yeah. as we see in the Israel story, and formation. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to the Psalms. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and also coming out of the Chronicles, interesting, the the focus of David at the end of First Chronicles, just the, the, the consuming focus of David on worship. When we get to the Psalms, which I won't say much about right now, because we're going to get to that in a, in a few minutes, but um, mm -hmm. a lot of worship there and a lot of formation in relationship to that worship journey. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, what a, a common theme with that being said is, um, to my earlier point, is that there are times, of course, where God's like, I don't really want your worship. I don't, mm. I don't care about, like, we'll get to that, especially in the, in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. Um, but worship alone is mm. not enough for God. The purpose of the worship is to is to instill a life of moral integrity, like like we were saying. And so coming to the temple and worshiping and sacrificing and going through the right motions is meaningless to God mm. if it's not ultimately leading to a worshipful life, if you will, yes. to a life of integrity. Now, again, that life of integrity is predicated upon the true worship of God, mm. um, but it's not the you know the, the 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 liturgical behavior is not what God's after. He's looking for us, you know, to go back to that first commandment to have no other gods before Him. That's what He's ultimately after because. Living in that experience is what is necessary to form a praiseworthy moral life. So, mm -hmm. I, I think it's fascinating because you and I do um, 
basically zero pre um, <laughs> preparation for the podcast, but your comments are right in line with a comment I made in uh, my reflection on the reading. And I mm. said, um, I asked the question, why the temple? It formed the path to relationship with God and a life of loving like God. It's worth noting that God is not, in fact, interested in simply teaching people how to worship, at least in a traditional sense. The sanctuary demonstrates that a life of love is inseparable from a life with God. God's redemptive project is not primarily about the human breakage of law, but human formation into law-like lovers. Mm, mm, mm. That's awesome. I mean, that's what well, you said. I formed it, framed it a little bit different, but I see <laughs> that theme over and over and over again of this. And, and law-like lovers, it's sort of a, sort of a bit of a, a careful road to walk because we're not focused mm -hmm. on, on performance to earn salvation. At the same time, following God is grounded in the mm -hmm. way we treat each other. Mm -hmm. Well, my brother-in-law says, as we you know, commonly say, great minds think alike, but my brother-in-law then adds, but small minds seldom differ. So maybe, <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure which one we have there, but, um, but no, I think, that's, I think that's right on. And for those who are tempted to make much of the details of the liturgical, you know, format or whatever, I, you know, not to harp on this type of point, but I remember uh, a number of years ago, somebody trying to speak about the evils of using percussion hmm. in church, quote unquote. And they pointed to how when David brought the, um, Ark of the Covenant, that the first time there was percussion, and Uzzah went out and tried to grab the Ark, and he died. And then the second time, David's like, oh, man, I got to do something different. And he uses every other instrument the second time but the percussion. Bill's like, oh, look at this, you know, that shows we shouldn't use percussion. Um, now, again, that, that, that touches on a whole discussion about to what degree these types of stories are supposed to be normative for us and so forth and so on. But my, my point is elsewhere. I, I was reading this last time. I think uh, Samuel makes this point And then in Kings there's percussion in the second, you know, time, whatever. So my point is um, I don't think the details of the liturgy of the temple are supposed to be some sort of normative, you know, uh, way of doing things. Because, I mean, after all, what if we're trying to make it normative, what temple? Are we talking about Solomon's mm -hmm. temple? Mm -hmm. Are we talking about Herod's temple? Are we talking about uh, the sanctuary that moved around in the, you know, because they're, they're all different. And so, mm -hmm. again, to your point, my point that I'm making is, I don't know that God is wanting his people to get hung up on those things. Mm -hmm. The point is what it's all pointing to. Yeah. And that is the character of God, the mm -hmm. love of God, the supremacy of God, so that we can be formed in his image mm -hmm. by his grace. 
Yeah. So we got to move on. But before we move on, one observation, Israel is led out of Egypt in the Exodus. The first thing they do when they camp out is related to the law and the tabernacle. And Mm. then Mm. they move toward the promised land and ultimately into the, the land of promise and set up as a nation. So I find that interesting that here in the rebuilding, the exiles returning, the the order the story is told in is temple rebuilding, then wall. Same order when we look at the Exodus story. I just thought that was a fascinating parallel mm. between the two um, the two storylines, the first, mm. the Exodus, the second one, the exiles returning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point. So Nehemiah is... Yeah. Uh, a book about the wall being rebuilt mm-hmm. and a leader who is the cupbearer to, was it, did I say Artaxerxes or was it Xerxes? I think, yeah, Artaxerxes was it, I think. So, it, well, forgive us if we've forgotten that quick, but anyway, <laughs> uh, there he was a uh, cupbearer in the palace and interesting in both cases, the, um, in Ezra's case, the king, the kingdom, actually funds either all or a big chunk of the rebuilding of the temple and also in and in Nehemiah's case funds a chunk of the process to rebuild the wall. So it's interesting mm-hmm. how these non-Hebrew kingdoms are directly engaged in the restoration of of God's mm-hmm. people as a nation. I can confirm Nathan it was Artaxerxes. We Thank have- you. These two genius pastors here who have just read these texts and we've already forgotten. <laughs> Can't say their names aren't similar. <laughs> That's very similar. So yeah. we just call art. We just call them art. Art of art. There you just go. Call them art, so we can remember. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anything yeah. else from Nehemiah? We we did spend well, a lot of time in Ezra, but yeah, anything else in Nehemiah? Yeah, two two things jump out at me. Uh, first of all, Nehemiah. Uh, begins with this prayer of corporate mm. repentance. I'll use that term. Yeah, uh, he is praying. Can, yeah, explain it to us. What you mean by well? That. Yeah, he's 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 confessing the sins of not only himself. He's confessing the sins of of Judah. He's confessing the sins of his people, mm. um, which is fascinating because Daniel. We're going to find that as well when we go later on. Um, which again, you know, it has all sorts of interesting implications, but he is deeply grieved. You know, uh, Nehemiah 1 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah takes it upon himself to be some sort of representative hmm. for, for the people, and he feels some level of responsibility. You know, he's, he's a cupbearer, he's not. You know, he's not uh, the president of Israel. He's not, mm-hmm. you know, the high priest or whatever. He's he's a cupbearer for, for the king. Uh, obviously, he's given some significant responsibility. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, it's fascinating that. And I think Ezra kind of touches on that as well, where the people were to confess the sins of their fathers, interestingly, mm-hmm. where... Um, you know, so I mean, that has all sorts of other implications, but I just find that fascinating. There's a tension there in Scripture where, on the one hand, we're not held responsible for the sins of our ancestors on some level, like you know, a number of places God says, "I'm not going to hold the children 
liable for the sins of their, their yeah. parents. But on yeah. the other hand, there is a sense in which the children do apparently feel some level of responsibility and mm. want to make things right. Um, so that's an interesting theme. Mm -hmm. Secondly, Nehemiah, of course, he has repeatedly tried to be drawn away from his ministry, drawn away mm -hmm. from his work. Mm -hmm. And he's like, nope, I have a mission. I know what I'm here to do. And I'm not coming down off the wall. I'm just sticking with this. So go away, you know, take a hike, so to speak. Like you can't deter me. You cannot pull me away from, um, you know, from, from what my job is. Thirdly, last thing I would just point out um, is, yeah, you touched on it a little bit earlier is the significance of Sabbath mm. where, you know, he's distraught by what these people are doing you know, to desecrate the Sabbath. And um, it's not some sort of arbitrary, um, hey, you're just keeping it the wrong way. It's like they are not seeing the full value of Sabbath and entering mm. into the restorative, liberating nature of Sabbath. They're trying to keep pushing their sales. They're trying to keep, you know, pushing their, their wares. And so... Nehemiah is very disturbed by this. He says, close the gate. Like, we can't have any of this, right? Like, he is so, and I, and I can't remember what it was, but I noticed it in our reading recently. I'd always kind of speculated it, but there was some passage, I don't know if it was Chronicles, where God does specifically point to their desecration of the Sabbath as mm -hmm. the reason for their exile. Hmm. And so, not to encourage some sort of legalistic like oh man you can't you know you can't do x y or z on this holy day but there is again to our earlier point there is something morally deforming hmm. about not entering into all god sought for sabbath so there's yeah. something going on there that i think you know ezekiel will bring it up when mm -hmm. we get there but there's something going on there where God has a jealous regard for Sabbath, not again because he wants to just be worshipped in some, you know, egotistical way, but he mm -hmm. knows that there is a key. And it, the other the other prophets talk about it as well. There is something key about entering into Sabbath that God knows is morally forming mm -hmm. in a positive way. And we could spend a whole podcast series mm. actually talking about the Sabbath. Um, I, I think it's worth bringing in that, I think it was Chronicles mentioned Jeremiah's prophecy that the land would, would um, be in captivity for 70 years. Mm, and that yeah. was specifically so the land could rest for its, its sabbatical years that were missed. In mm -hmm, the Hebrew mm -hmm. calendar, there wasn't simply the weekly Sabbath, but there was a, a bigger rhythm of Sabbath. So we often think of Sabbath in the limited weekly sense, but Sabbath represented as, as I see it, a rhythm of living at rest in God's providence mm. that extended mm. beyond the boundaries of the weekly Sabbath. So Nehemiah is talking about the weekly Sabbath, but Israel's in captivity because they've desecrated in a sense or neglected the Sabbath years mm -hmm. that were, um, part of their their rhythm beyond the week were part of their rhythm as a nation over the years. And mm -hmm. again, 
we could take a whole podcast, but something to pay attention to in the text is the way Sabbath plays into the story of rest mm-hmm. in the providence of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I know we probably have to keep going, Nathan, because I was thinking, man, what, are we going to be able to fill a whole segment of on, on Ezra and Nehemiah, and here we are like 35 minutes into it. And <laughs> yes. Easy. We haven't even gotten to the larger book. Right, this, yes. So Esther. Week. Yeah. Is, um, I, I would say Esther and Ruth provide insights into God's providence for his people, even when they were not in their homeland. Of course, we see that in Nehemiah mm. and Daniel, but I think it's interesting, not only that God is providing for his people and in exile, when they're struggling, when they're in foreign lands. I think it's also interesting on another note to notice that these are two books of women mm-hmm. having Don't a prominent that. place in the story of God's people. Oh uh, Yeah, I was just going to point that out. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's definitely a, a, a thread that points out how women have dignity. And, and I mean, that sounds funny to say to us perhaps in 2023, but maybe it does need to be reminded, you know, people do need to be reminded that in 2023, the dignity, importance and value and influence of women. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we're on to Job. So that, again, is one of my favorite books. If I had a <laughs> choice, I might put Job as the first book in the Bible to be read. Yeah. Genesis or Job, those are they're just so... Yeah. Job is a book for me, again, there's lots of ways Job is interpreted um, as far as the beginning of the book where there's uh, this kind of um, representative gathering, what appears to be this representative gathering of leaders from multiple worlds, which is a whole conversation (laughs) in itself, and Lucifer... um, or Satan, he comes Satan. claiming representation from earth. And for me, this story, this introductory story to Job has so many layers. And, and then following with the entire book has so many layers that in company with a handful of other places in scripture, um, for me, give profound insights into the events happening in the invisible space that spill into, not just spill into, but directly affect life in the visible space as we mm. know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It seems like that first, those first couple chapters of Job kind of pull back the curtain. Mm-hmm. And what I like to refer to and give us insight into the story behind the story, like yeah. there's, something else going on outside of our planet, if you will. And it gives us insight into a cosmic narrative, a cosmic yes. story going on. And yeah, like you say, um, you know, some, some have said that Job may have been the first actual book written. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's sometime to some degree, a, a foolhardy pursuit is to try to figure out exactly when each book was written. But um right. You know, there's people who are much smarter and spent much more time than us wrestling with these things. But, um, you know, there's a lot there that really gives insight into this larger story going on. 
And it's interesting that on some level, it's a story about Job's character. Mm. But on another level, it's also a story about God's character mm. where where there's a there's a subtle questioning from this Satan figure, which, you know, I happen to think it's probably this power that we think of as, quote, Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's a subtle, maybe not even subtle, but it's ultimately, you know, Satan questioning God's character. Mm-hmm. Saying, yeah, Job, Job, uh, Job's a good guy, but like he only follows you because you you give him the, the goods like he you know you he's in your favor and so if you take that away you are not worthy of following hmm. following sorry following mm-hmm. um and uh so yeah it's it's in many ways a a, tr- a trial of job but on some levels it's also a trial of god mm-hmm. this accusation of god as a manipulator is is really an echo of the same accusation in different words all the way back in the garden. So it's another thing mm. that for me sort of reinforces the idea that this book is not just is not simply a poetic description of a difficult experience in a person's life, but is actually mm. the pulling back of the curtain on real events, real conversations um, outside the human space that impact the human space. Um, one of the things that comes to me as well is Job informs us that our human perception of reality is often in the dark. There was never a Mm -hmm. point in the story of Job when he understood that Satan was the Mm -hmm. instigator of his troubles. Never, not a a single moment from beginning Mm -hmm. to end, Job believes that God is that God's hand is responsible for his misfortune, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is p- also part of it. That that this conversation in the heavenly realm that brings God's character into question, for that conversation to be resolved, Job can't actually know about Satan's participation in his misery, because mm. if he does he then has, uh, then he's not able to choose God in spite of appearances. He now has an Mm. explanation. Oh, Mm. it's the devil making a mess of my life. I can Mm. trust God. Mm. So then we still have Mm. sort of the, the, the um, candy machine God, which is kind of the Mm -hmm. accusation Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book. So mm-hmm. Job has to stay in the dark in order for his loyalty to be genuine mm-hmm. and for Satan's accusations to be carried out in, tested in legitimate real-world fashion, mm-hmm. if you would. Yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting and insightful. I think really great points. Maybe the question would then become, in my mind, um, why so if if all the goodies are taken away from job quote unquote like why would god be worthy of mm. of of following why would god be worthy of his devotion and like if god is a tyrant not that mm-hmm. job thought that but like if god was a tyrant then why would he be worth you know giving our allegiance and devotion to so i don't know that's 
that's maybe I'm trying to process and think out loud mm-hmm, here as mm-hmm. you as you say that. Um, you know, because kind of towards the end, obviously, uh, God's answer to Job finally is like, well, let me ask you some questions, Job. Like, <laughs> and he he I wouldn't say he flexes his muscles, but he's just kind of like, you know. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And in other words, like I've done all of this, this mighty, powerful stuff. And he's not trying to overwhelm Job with a sense of shame. He's just saying, in some ways, like, hey, I've done all this. I probably know how to manage your life. Like, (laughs) you can trust me that I'm going to, you know, seek to do what's best for mm. for you but um it's interesting just on another note like as we are as we were going through this section um and this is going to be a little dated but you know this as we're reading this it's right around the time where um you know the, the Hamas has has blitzed you know Israel and I and I'm reading this and I'm thinking and I'm interacting with Jewish friends of mine and I'm just thinking about the parallels there between the tragedy that we can't Mm. make sense of. And we want to know, okay, man, where's God in all this? And, you know, sometimes we just don't, don't see it. And Job certainly, you know, he has, he has plenty of questions, but it's not as though the story is just like neat and tidy where he's just like, yeah, it's fine. Like Mm -hmm. he is, you know, there are times where he is like very passionately unsure of, you know, and that's another point. Like there's uncertainty there. Like Job, yeah, comes out looking like, you know, God's faith in him was justified, but it was, it was not just a simple straight line of mm-hmm. like no questions. It was like he went through the valley and there were moments of doubt. There were moments of questions, mm-hmm. not that he ever cursed God, but he, mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling here, Nathan. Help me sort through that. No, but that's good. And I, I think the rambling represents the fact that <laughs> the Job, the book itself, gives us a dish of complexity, mm-hmm. but doesn't tell us all the ingredients necessarily. Or maybe that's the not the right metaphor. It 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 helps us see the behind the scenes story, but also tells us that in day-to-day life, we may not understand the complexity just like Job did not understand the complexity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe the punchline to the whole thing, for Job at least, is though he slay me, yet mm-hmm. will I trust him. Like mm-hmm. He can take it all away. He can take my life away, but I'm still going to affirm his goodness, his trustworthiness, his is love. And, and that, I think, goes to the question of why that you asked earlier. Job clearly in the book has is coming into this tragic episode in his life with a pre-existing sense of God's goodness and a relationship that is intact and in place before these events in his life unfold. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to note. This isn't some random guy from the streets that just randomly runs into bad circumstances. This is a man who 
who has been walking with God, per se, using kind of the Enoch language from in Genesis, this communion, this relationship with God, and is in a position to go through a, a, a horrifically dark valley and survive it because the glue and his relationship with God is sturdy enough to make it through to the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in other words, the story is not Job saying to himself, God is a despicable, you know, terrible character, but I'm going to follow him anyway because he's God. Mm-hmm. It's it's based on I know I've experienced his goodness before, mm-hmm. and I know that I'll experience it again in the future. Mm-hmm. And God, this is kind of like a, a period where, for whatever reason, God is allowing or these things are happening in my life, but it is not a reflection of his character. It is for some reason, just a period episode in my life where I can't quite see God's goodness, but I know it's there because I've experienced it before Mm -hmm. and I'll experience it again. So yeah, he's not saying God's a terrible bloke, but you know, I, I, I guess I have to, you know, trust him anyway. It's like, no, no, I've experienced his goodness. So, yeah. Well, and that comes through in the sense you see over and over and over in the book where Job's like, if I can just make my case, he'll mm, understand mm. me. So there's this mm-hmm. this belief in God's continued goodness, even though Job always, to the end of the book, believes that the tragedy in his life is directly the action of God, mm-hmm. that Job Job believes there's some misunderstanding here because my friend is good and kind Mm -hmm. and just. And Mm -hmm. if I can just make my case with him, he would see my case and understand and Mm -hmm. respond accordingly. Which is interesting because, you know, in the book of Psalms, we see this a lot as well, where, uh, you know, whether it's David or others, like they, they don't have pride, but they have confidence in their own, righteousness in Mm. some ways and that's a loaded expression i just used but they are and they look forward to judgment they're like come on god like examine me you know bring it on like i know that my character will be vindicated if i can just you know have my chance in court so to speak Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so again there's that tension because you know in the New Testament, we see Paul saying all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, and yet there's a sense in which, not that it's their own righteousness, but you know, not to get too ahead of the story here, it's but it's it's the righteousness of Jesus, mm-hmm. but they have allowed it to transform their lives, and so they're like, yeah, I have confidence. Like I did, I, I did not do the things that these people are accusing me of doing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I can stand in the confidence that I have lived a life of, you know, righteousness before God. So if I can just get my chance in court, hmm. I know that all this will be cleared up and I'll be fine. So that, I mean, that's an interesting, it is very interesting dynamic. And I highlighted that in the Psalms conversation. Um, so by the way, God actually, supports Job's claims in a sense, because at the beginning mm-hmm. of the book, God says, this this guy is blameless. Yeah. So perfect. when Job argues, I have been good to my neighbors, I've been good to the poor, he is actually telling the truth. And at, at the outset, mm-hmm. again, God has indicated that Job is correct. 
Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Interesting question to ask you, not so much for an answer, but for a pondering. Job says in the last chapter, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My question <laughs> is, what did Job repent of? God says he's blameless. I don't have an answer to that. I'm just throwing it out as, yeah. as you begin reading this week. Um, just be thinking about that. Psalms. Um, mm. So so we've we've gone through some whiplash here as we move. In fact, as we move through into the Jesus story, between now and the Jesus story, we're going to experience what I would call whiplash. <laughs> we came out of Second Chronicles into the time of Babylonian captivity. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther line up well in that. But then the whiplash comes in because Job takes us all the way back to... Um, most likely pre-Israel days, could be Abraham's days, somewhere in there. He lives um, more than 120 years, according to the book. So that kind of helps us put his story somewhere in the past, um, pre-Israel. Again, we're going to get in the weeds if we try to date it, but it's definitely an earlier story. Um, So that's an earlier story. Then we come to Psalms. Psalms encompasses, the earliest Psalm is it's not in this week's reading, or it's not, yeah, it's not in this week's reading, but it's a psalm of Moses. Mm-hmm. But the psalms yeah. also extend into the captivity. So psalms mm-hmm. is, it's a whole different book. It's basically a collection of prayers and hymns that are essential to the to Hebrew worship. So psalms gives us kind of an insight into the language of the, of, of the worship for God's people, Israel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Psalms, you know, we'll unpack this probably a lot more next week because a lot more of our reading will be in Psalms. But um, yeah, man, it's 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 really encouraging on many levels because of the raw nature of it. And mm-hmm. some of these, yeah, it's a prayer book and it's kind of songs. And you're like, man, is this what they're singing in worship like this type, of, <laughs> right. this type of language this type of imagery this type of sentiment like that seems pretty <laughs> raw and vulnerable and mm. you know i i occasionally attend uh, a jewish synagogue like i did again just last week after israel was attacked by hamas and you know the raw like that's the way the worship of jewish liturgy is it's like they're wailing, they're crying, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're open, they're, they're lamenting. And, you know, I, I, as I've heard some, some people say, uh, we in the West, you know, we don't know how to lament. Like we, mm. we can't, we can't stay in that space. It's almost like we're allergic to it, but this is raw stuff. Some of it is really positive and give thanks to the Lord for he is good, but others of it is, yeah. Well, and we'll, We'll unpack that a little bit more next week, I'm sure. But this is a great reminder and to, to all of us as we move through the text. It is appropriate for us to get outraged and angry when we read things in Scripture that bother us. So mm-hmm. when you read of the awful time, we've already been through this, but Judges, when we read through Isaiah, which recounts some really horrific stuff, for us to get outraged and puzzled and angry, even with God and how we feel he may mm. be involved mm-hmm. in it, is is not sacrilegious. 
that is part of the human struggle and the formation of our hearts and our understanding of God and his making us into beautiful people is moving through the anger and Mm -hmm. outrage. It it legitimizes every human emotion. Yeah. It's like it is not inappropriate to feel anger. Yeah. It's not appropriate to feel sad. Mm-hmm. It's not inappropriate to be happy. <laughs> I know it's funny to say. It's not inappropriate to feel resentment. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think we should stay in that space, right. but Psalms, there's plenty of Psalms where David's like, I want this dude to fry. Like, I <laughs> I do not, like, this dude needs to, he needs to get what he deserves. Right. And like, he's in the wrong, I'm in the right, and God, do something. Yeah, this yeah. isn't this isn't working. So, yeah, that's very important to recognize and acknowledge. Yeah. So, book one again is almost all psalms attributed directly to David. Book two, um, we just get into the beginning of that, but those are not directly attributed to David. Um, a couple of things to keep in mind: watch for the messianic overtones that litter the book mm-hmm. from the the. Hebrew connection to the Son of God in, what is it, Psalm, Hebrews 2, Psalms 8, if you compare those, Hebrews 1, Psalms 2. But then there are overtones of the death of Jesus that are in this mm-hmm. uh, up this week's reading. Um, yeah. The forsaken experience of Jesus on the cross is part of this week's reading. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, threads of the Psalms can be found in other parts of Scripture, not just the Messianic piece, but other elements of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because this represents kind of the worship language, the poetic language of the people of God for a massive amount of history. All, again, going all the way back to Moses and then all the way into the exile time frame, we have pieces put together, pulled together into the Psalms. Any other themes? I've got a list of themes here I want to point out, but I wonder if you have any themes that you would mention um, as we're again next week, we'll be almost entirely in the Psalms. This week, we just dabble in them. No, I think what jumped out at me is just the point I, I just made. Just the the legitimacy of the full range of human experience and emotions that that God apparently does not shame or um, you know uh, preclude. Like he just like this is this is appropriate. Um, and so that's no, that's the level I was kind of looking at it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, and I've been reading it is um, just yeah, legitimizing the human experience. Yeah, Psalms is harder for me to read in this uh, thirteen week. By the way, one of the harder mm-hmm. ones because yeah. poetry is hard to skim. Yeah, yeah, straight up hard to skim. And and you're like, and there's so many Psalms, and maybe it's just because of the fact that I'm reading the message, and I I feel a little disoriented because I know. You know, my Bible I've had since I was 17. You know, I, I know the layout. I know yeah. all that. And it's, so for some reason, I'm having a hard time distinguishing between, like, psalms. Like, okay, mm. this one sounds like the last one. And this one, like, they're all the same thing going on <laughs> here. So um, I don't know. I'm not picking up that nuance. And because we are doing a, a quick reading, yeah. you know, it is harder to kind of settle in and really slow down and pay attention to the distinctions mm-hmm. between one psalm to the next. But there definitely is 
is obviously a variety in there. Yeah. And that's another reason why it's great to switch up translations because it does sort of unmoor you from your your kind of pre-organization in your head and helps yeah, you see exactly. fresh stuff. So here's some of the themes. Wickedness orchestrates its own demise. That theme actually comes up in this week's reading. will come up again. Um, another is the problem of evil when it appears to triumph. This is a theme that's wrestled mm-hmm. with in the Psalms. A God who sees and hears, another theme. We've seen it already in Scripture, Tower of Babel, etc. The pre-Exodus time frame, this God who sees and hears, that's a theme that shows up in the Psalms. Judgment as an act of deliverance also shows up mm-hmm. in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Justice for the poor and the weak also ties in here. Um, again, my friend Steve Allred and I are, are going to do an entire 13-week, again, reading um, series like Sean and I are doing now on the the justice and mercy themes of the text. Um, Favor and righteousness going hand in hand. That's, Sean, you alluded to that when you were Mm -hmm. sort of, we were just on the cusp of talking about Psalms. A longing for God, that shows up over and over and over Mm -hmm. again, especially in these Davidic Psalms. And a trust in God's providence. I was going to say, um, one thing that jumped out at me as well is I think there is a tendency, which I think is the appropriate balancing move to recognize within Scripture the collective nature of Scripture. And some of the reading I'm doing in my just my doctoral research, um, to some degree, kind of downplays or questions the tendency within the American psyche to highly individualize Hmm. the Bible and to um, make it all about me and, you know, lose the larger narrative. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is God trying to do something for a people, not just like my personal relationship with Jesus or my personal salvation. So I'm I'm inclined to recognize the significance of that important correction. However, when I read the Psalms, I'm greatly encouraged about the personal nature of it. Like mm. this is very clearly a relationship mm-hmm. between the writer and God. Mm-hmm. And focus on God deliver me and mm-hmm. God you have done this for me and mm. There are there are times where he's like talking about the corporate, you know, Judah and Israel and so forth. But the majority of it does, to use the term legitimize again, it does legitimize the significant relationship between God and the individual. Hmm. I was just in a CPE class yesterday and um, our, I don't know, teacher, instructor, whatever, um, referred to one, um, I'm not sure what discipline this person's profession was in that she was quoting, but three layers that we inhabit, individual, group, and universal. And those Mm. are spaces in our lives that we inhabit. And you're talking about, you've you've mentioned today both two of them, and one is Mm -hmm. the group space, the other is the individual space. So that is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I just, yeah, just to bring home the point again, like I do think there's a a danger in being so preoccupied with just ourselves mm-hmm. and like just about me and my relationship with Jesus. And, um, uh, 
but I, I think I almost was inclining to overcorrect lately just because mm. there is a disdain almost in some of the people I'm reading about the tendency within American Christianity to be all about the individual. So, so reading the book of Psalms is like, okay, this is legitimate. Like God does want to, I know it sounds silly, but God does want to relate to us as individuals. Mm, that's and a beautiful reminder. Yeah. There, there's a, there's an importance to that reality that like David is like, yeah, me and God, like we're, this is, this is the thing. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so um, there's so much we can touch on. We got to wrap it up before we start losing oh, listeners. <laughs> um, you just want to swing back to something you mentioned, and that's this idea. This is from Psalms 18. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. <laughs> so, Sean, that, maybe we can talk about this yeah, in the future. Um, that, I mean, that sounds like a bad thing. Right. God's doing that. But it's a good thing for David, right? Yeah. And it shows up over and over and over again. So here's my something I wrote um, in relationship to this idea. Salvation is not some metaphysical mystery, but concrete in two ways. Deliverance from enemies and restoration to moral integrity. Following God is never separate from, from one's treatment of others. Following God is never separate from one's treatment of others. I, I am, am seeing more this theme in Scripture that salvation is more a way of doing than a theory of the world. Kind of in the, in the mindset of Scripture, walking with God is concretely a way, uh, about the way we do life more than it is the way we philosophize or theologize about God and life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Great point. I think that's so important and one a topic we could keep pressing and I'm sure we'll return to it. I think we will because it's going to come up again and again in the Psalms, which we get to sit in uh, next week. So this week, enjoy your reading, starting with Ezra and moving into the Psalms. Uh, God bless you in this journey, and may you see his beauty more clearly as you move through the text. Thanks for sharing this time with us. See. Experience. Live. Loveshaped.life.